inside COVID-19 from Biz News. This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Welcome to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. episode, we talk to a data and privacy law specialist, Emma Sadlier, on the scepticism surrounding COVID-19 contact tracing apps. And Professor Shabir Mahdi, one of South Africa's preeminent experts on vaccines, speaks to us about the latest developments in COVID-19 vaccine trials, including the news that the AstraZeneca Oxford trial has been temporarily put on hold. Professor Mahdi also shares the details of a study that explores the possibility that South Africans may have developed immunity to COVID-19 as a result of exposure to other similar diseases. This research has been highlighted by the BBC. Professor Mahdi also sets out how the pandemic might develop in South Africa. First, the latest COVID-19 news. Late-stage trials for a leading coronavirus vaccine have been suspended after a study participant suffered a potentially unexplained illness. South Africa is among the countries to have signed an agreement with AstraZeneca to secure the vaccine if trials prove successful. The drug maker says it voluntarily paused the trial to allow a review by an independent committee. The Deputy Chief Medical Officer says the move by no means puts that vaccine trial completely off the table. It said this is a routine action which has to happen whenever there is a potentially unexplained illness in a trial. In large trials, illnesses will happen by chance but must be independently reviewed to check this carefully, it said. In other news, Prime Minister Boris Johnson is forbidding social gatherings of more than six people in England. Los Angeles has banned traditional Halloween activities such as trick-or-treating. And India's fatalities from coronavirus infections are creeping up after the country surpassed Brazil to have the world's second highest number of cases. India reported more than 1,000 deaths from COVID-19 for eight consecutive days, which is higher than the daily death toll in other hard-hit nations like the US, Brazil, Russia and Mexico, says Bloomberg. With almost 74,000 virus-related deaths, India has the world's third most people killed by the virus. COVID-19 has hit central London property prices. Bloomberg reports that offices in central London are set to decline in value, by as much as 10% this year as the pandemic drives down demand for space. Short-term demand for offices has slumped, with many companies' employees still working from home after lockdown. It quotes Simon Wallace, co-head of Alternatives Research and Strategy at DWS Group, who says that this is likely to push rents in the capital's most expensive areas down by about 8%. As the number of COVID-19 cases rises sharply in parts of Europe, health authorities are calling on young people to do more to halt the spread of the virus. In Spain, which on Monday became the first Western European country to record more than 500,000 COVID-19 cases, authorities have been urging greater vigilance among young people for weeks. Researchers believe there is a thrombosis risk in patients with COVID-19. Autopsy findings revealed thrombosis as a direct cause of death in several cases, However, little is known in critically ill patients, says the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine. Next, BizNews founder Alec Hogg interviews data and privacy law specialist Emma Sadlier. Hello. 
Ms. Adler is the founder and chief executive of the Digital Law Company. We've spoken a few times over the past few months, Emma, about issues like data privacy. Now we've got the new app that we all have to download so that we can fight COVID-19 together. But there are many people worrying that the big brother is going to be following them in some way. What's the legal ramifications of an app like this, and have they taken the right precautions? Yeah, so I, I want to stop you right at the beginning and say that the first thing is that we don't have to download it. You know, I really do appeal to everybody to download it because I think the only way that we're going to contain this epidemic is, as we know, through contact tracing, containment, etc. But it's a very important point from a privacy law point of view is that there is absolutely nothing compulsory about this app. I have looked at it just from a general interest point of view. You know, I haven't been properly involved in any aspect of it. There has been a brilliant senior counsel giving legal advice to the team of developers throughout the process who was mandated really just to consider the privacy issues and the privacy law implications. This, as you know, anything to do with Big Brother watching you and privacy really does interest me. So I've had a look at the app in quite a lot of detail. I downloaded it as soon as I was able to. And I think that there are a few very important points. The first is that it is voluntary. So it's not something that's automatically been inserted onto everybody's phone and that they're going to be traced at all times. And, you know, I think that we really have to right at the outset say this is a voluntary app. From a privacy law point of view, I don't see any reason that people should be nervous that Big Brother is watching us and that this is going to have huge privacy concerns. So I I just want to say that at the outset. The second is that it takes very little personal information, and we can go into this in more detail. It is an entirely anonymous app, which means that any of those privacy concerns that people have out there surely should be very small, if any. But I think, Alec, the issue is at the moment that people do have a kind of a distrust of the government and they do feel a bit like civil disobedience is the order of the day and we're not going to be told what to do by anybody else. That seems to be the sentiment about a lot of people at the moment. And it must be tough for the people trying to do public health, because if you don't have cooperation of the public, then how can you keep them healthy? But Google and Apple designed this in a way that the privacy issues were also apparently taken into account at a very, very deep level. Have you had a chance to look at that? Yeah, I've had a look at all of it. So so firstly, I must echo your thoughts, and that is that the success of this app will rest and fall on the extent of the uptake. So basically, you know, what we're dealing with is an app that uses Bluetooth. So a lot of people are nervous about having their Bluetooth on. I've got my Bluetooth on pretty much all the time. You know, when I get into my car, I need to be able to carry on that conversation that I started before I got in the car and it automatically comes through my Bluetooth on my car. A lot of people use their Bluetooth on their phones for their health tracking watches. You know, for me, that's not a big concern. You know, there are some concerns to do with hacking, etc., to do with that, that involve having your Bluetooth connection on at all times, but I really don't think that it is a real risk um, for the average person. So it relies on your Bluetooth. The app doesn't collect any personal information. So it doesn't collect your name. It doesn't collect your email address, your phone number. No location is collected or stored. All it does, Alec, is that it tells you if within the previous 14 days you've come into contact with somebody who has voluntarily disclosed that they have tested positive. 
It doesn't tell you who that person is. It doesn't tell you exactly where that exposure took place. It just tells you that on a specific day, you came into close contact with somebody who was tested positive. Now, that might have been at a bri, obviously, of less than 10 people, because that's what you're allowed at the moment. But it might have been in the queue at the spa. You know, it could have been while you were out grocery shopping. It could have been it could have been anywhere. And that's the, the brilliance of the app, Alec, because at the moment, you know, we're doing manual tracing. Which is good if it's to do, if it, if the exposure has taken place to somebody that you know, but it doesn't help you with exposure of somebody who you don't know, because that person that you stood behind in the queue at the Woolworths is not somebody you know. So if they test positive in the next couple of days, they can't phone you and say, look, I've had this issue and I use that credit card machine, which should have been sanitized just before you did. There isn't that kind of thing. So manual contact tracing really does have its limitations which is why this technology is so brilliant. So just to go back, there's, you know, there's no pairing which is required. It uses random Bluetooth identifiers, which rotate every 10 to 20 minutes. So that helps prevent tracking. The only exception to the information that it does collect is when you voluntarily open the app and self-report that you have been diagnosed. And in order to do that, diagnose positive, in order to do that, you have to put in your date of birth. Now, that's just an extra step to make sure that people are accurately reporting so that people don't misuse the app. So what you would need to do is that you get sent a PIN and that you put in your date of birth. And with those two pieces of information, you're able to successfully notify the app and therefore notify all of your contacts that you have been exposed. You've been telling us for quite some time now to be careful about privacy, particularly online. You've made a career out of explaining to the rest of the world how that works. So why did you not feel bad about downloading this app? Or indeed, why did you actually take that step? Mm. So I think the first thing is that I don't want to get COVID. <laughs> you know, so so it's always a give or take. There's always a balance. But just here we've got sort of public health on the one hand and privacy issues on the other hand. Now, if it was a question of downloading an app like they're using in China, which is firstly, there's no voluntary uptake of it. You just, it gets forced upon you. I mean, I've got a friend in China who, if she goes to a shop for too long, the authorities come and have a chat with her. It is really Big Brother watching you, tracing you, tracking you at all times, and it's living in a proper police state. This is not that. Firstly, it requires your consent. Now, we talk about POPI, the Protection of Personal Information Act. POPI defines consent as any voluntary, specific, and informed expression of will in terms of which permission is given for the processing of personal information. And basically, this app does require you to give your specific consent throughout the app usage. So that doesn't bother me. Are dealing with a special kind of personal information. Under POPI, there's your personal information, which are things like your name and your email address. And then there are things called special personal information, and your your health information would certainly fall under that classification of special personal information, which requires even greater protection. Now, the thing here is that it's anonymous. I've downloaded the app. I didn't have to give them my first name, my surname, my phone number, my email address. I just downloaded the app, right? So there's this thing on my phone, which is just a location, a location-based app. It's not like the Department of Health knows that this app was downloaded by Emma Sadler on this day and she was exposed to this person and she spent two hours at the Bri and we can tell that there were 20 other people there and therefore we should prosecute her under the regulations. You know, it's none of that. It's really just your phone, which has your Bluetooth enabled. 
came into contact with somebody else's phone, which has their Bluetooth enabled, and they have self-reported that they have tested positive. So really, Alec, where we're dealing with what we call anonymized data, we fall outside of the realm of Puppy. Puppy is the Protection of Personal Information Act. Now, where you're dealing with an app that doesn't take any personal information, that personal information does not attach to a specific person, and therefore you do not have to comply with the requirements of Puppy. That said, this app, and as I said, they've been using brilliant lawyers throughout the process, it does comply with Puppy. But what I'm saying to you is that it doesn't actually have to comply with Puppy because all the information is anonymized and actually encrypted as well, which means that if anyone does intercept it, it's just gobbledygook. They can't tell what it says. But basically, you don't have to worry about the privacy concerns. And I think the issue here, and I've I've been getting resistance even from my own family members when I've said to them, you must go and download the app. Uh, People are telling me, oh, no, it's too big brotherish for me. I appreciate that some of the apps that have been rolled out around the world are big brotherish, but this is not that. So there's really nothing logical stopping you from downloading it. The only reason why we haven't all done so is because of the perception that it could be tracking you. It is tracking you, but it's not tracking you. It's tracking a phone. (laughs) Absolutely, exactly. And because it uses this sort of rolling Bluetooth, so every 15 to 20 minutes it changes, if I go to my phone and say, where was I at this particular time, it can't tell me that information. So it's not storing your location. It's not collecting your location, and it's not storing your location. And so we've just got to really comfort people out there that privacy concerns have been really maximized in this in order to increase the uptake, because everybody is super conscious of the fact that the success of this app will rest and fall on the extent of the uptake. You know, if I go into the shops and I'm the only person who's downloaded the app, well, then the app's not going to be very useful. But even if a small percentage of people in that shop that I go into have downloaded it, then it will be useful. So we require critical mass here. As I've said, the manual methods, although helpful, are quickly overwhelmed. And let's use this amazing tech that's available to us. And there is no reason to be suspicious. They can come and contact me if if you find out that your information has been misused. Uh, I'll take the hit. I really do think that people should download this app. I think it's a really good step. You know, because Alec, we all want to get back to normal life. And this is a step towards that. This will allow us to live our lives as sort of normally as possible because we will have the comfort of quick notification. It's immediate. You know, it's not like we have to go through the list of every person we've come across. Immediately, you get a pop-up on your phone saying you've been exposed on this day, and then you can take the steps required. So it is a little bit about selflessness. You don't really want to go out there and make other people sick. And if you believe in that, is a tool that can help you to achieve that more noble ambition than somebody who lives in ignorance and might unwittingly be making lots of others ill by not really knowing their status. Absolutely. You know, it's selflessness, but it's also allowing me to be selfish because it allows me to go on with my normal life and be exposed to people that I don't know with the comfort of knowing that I will be notified if there is any potential exposure. So I think that it's, for me, a no-brainer. Exposure notification and early exposure notification is really absolutely critical to how we contain this epidemic going forward. And um, the technology is there, and let's use it. Next.
next, Professor Shabir Mahdi, Professor of Vaccinology at the University of the Witwatersrand, speaks to us about the latest developments in COVID-19. Inside COVID-19, from BizNews. Professor Mahdi, you are one of South Africa's experts on the vaccine trials, and we've had this news today that AstraZeneca has put on hold its phase three trials. What does this actually mean for the South African trials? Uh, so the South African study uh, is actually being overseen by the same data and safety monitoring committee that the study that's overseeing the study in the United Kingdom and Brazil. And as you are aware, there was an event, medical event that was reported from one of the study participants in the United Kingdom, which is currently undergoing review by the Independent Data and Safety Monitoring Committee. Whilst the Data and Safety Monitoring Committee are undertaking this review, they've requested all of the sites to postpone further vaccination. So the South Africa site is similarly affected as is the site in the United Kingdom as well as the sites in Brazil, in that we have postponed vaccination until there's adequate interrogation of the medical event that has been reported. And do we know what actually happened? Was this actually the COVID-19 vaccine or was it the placebo? Do you know what happened there? Yeah, so we certainly don't know, and that's the reason. And I think what's important to emphasize is that this is not unique to the COVID-19 vaccines. This is part of the discourse of the clinical evaluation of any intervention, especially in the early stages of its development, in that we are extremely cautious in terms of reviewing things that might be associated with vaccination, irrespective of whether the participant received the vaccine or not. The participants, as well as the investigators, usually are blinded in terms of whether the participant has received a vaccine or a controlled substance, which in the United Kingdom happens to be a meningococcal vaccine. So uh, in any other study, in the phase one, phase two studies especially, where you still, uh, where much of what happens to the vaccine is unknown, the sort of event could uh, sort of raise a flag in terms of needing further interrogation to exclude that the event is actually related in any way to vaccination. So it's not unique to COVID-19 vaccines. This would be part of the discourse of any phase one, phase two study where an intervention is being investigated both for its safety as well as in terms of its efficacy. Right. And how does this affect the other trials that are currently underway in South Africa? Well, it doesn't have any bearing on the other vaccine trial that is underway because that is a completely different construct. That is a subunit protein vaccine, which is developed by another company. And that study, as well as many other COVID-19 vaccine trials, that are underway, which are not using this uh, vaccine that is now licensed to AstraZeneca. All of those other vaccine studies are still very much ongoing. Again, to emphasize, uh, if in any of those studies, if a similar event or if any other sort of event, which is possibly associated with vaccination and which is deemed to be extremely serious or serious, uh, those studies would also be affected uh, in terms of their own timelines as well as in terms of their conduct because the independent data and safety monitoring committees of those studies would probably respond in a very similar fashion as has the DSMB for this particular study. And we're going at quite a rapid pace compared to the usual pace for vaccines. Is that right? That's correct. So we're trying to achieve pretty much what is usually achieved in a 10-and-a-half-year period. On average, we're trying to achieve that probably in a 10-and-a-half-month period. 
So we certainly are very much on the accelerated uh, pathway in terms of doing the clinical evaluation of the COVID-19 vaccines. But I think this is an example which shows that we're not sort of taking any shortcuts, that if there are any sort of concerns that are being raised, those are actually being addressed timelessly and not at the expense of safety of participants. So this sort of bolding mechanisms to ensure the safety of the participants is essential. And if anything, this particular event highlights uh, the intense scrutiny under which the studies are being taken with the safety of participants of paramount concern, both to the data and safety monitoring committee, to the investigators, as well as on the part of AstraZeneca. And where's the world now in terms of getting to a vaccine? We heard a while ago that Russia had approved one. Realistically, how close are we to getting a vaccine to help us protect everybody from COVID-19? Right. So I think this particular example illustrates why you can't put too much emphasis on the Russians having a licensed vaccine based on a limited investigation of the vaccine for immune responses in equivalent of what is known as a phase one study. Uh, you really need to do larger studies into the thousands of individuals to be able to pick up this sort of safety concerns. So it would be premature to say that the Russians have got a licensed vaccine because that vaccine certainly needs to undergo much more scientific interrogation before we can be assured of its safety and there isn't any evidence to actually show that it protects against COVID-19. So currently there are a number of studies, there's close to 40 different studies that are in human trials, of which about seven of them are in phase three studies. And in many of these phase three studies, about three or four of them are already underway in the United States. These are studies that are enrolling up to 30,000 participants. And that is to assess for safety as well as for efficacy, whether the vaccine protects against COVID-19. In terms of the timelines as to when we'll know the answers from these studies, it's largely dependent to some extent on the speed at which we complete enrollment of this large number of participants, but also in terms of the amount of virus that is circulating. Because the way these studies work is that eventually you need to get a certain number of people that actually develop COVID-19 for you to be able to do an analysis to determine whether the vaccine protects against COVID-19 or not. And the timeline that it takes to get to those required numbers is completely dependent upon the circulation of the virus in the community. So it's really difficult to predict, but the larger your sample size, the sooner you're likely to get to that particular point where you've got adequate number of cases to do that sort of evaluation. So it's difficult to predict. I think most people are still optimistic that we might be able to get an answer, at least for two, of the, two or three of the vaccines that are currently in phase three. We might be able to get an answer by November, December of this year. Professor Mahdi, South Africa has been in the world headlines because we have a very low death rate compared to the rate of infections. And you were quoted in a BBC report saying that there may be some immunity that seems to have developed in South Africa. Could you elaborate on that theory that's currently becoming quite popular? Right. So I think there's two parts to that. The first part is whether South Africa, in fact, does have a low death rate. And the answer to that is no. The way the data is being interpreted is actually quite misleading. So when we talk of a low death rate, different people are using different sort of figures to sort of illustrate what they're trying to get to. They're really re- they're referring to what is known as a case fatality rate, which in South Africa is about 2%, 2.5%. But you can't use that as a measure to compare to what happened in the United Kingdom or in Italy and France, because when they calculated the case fatality rate, they were calculating it based on the denominator being individuals that were mainly hospitalized cases of COVID-19. 
whereas in South Africa, our denominator includes mild cases, asymptomatic individuals, as well as COVID-19 cases. So it's fundamentally flawed to make that sort of head-to-head comparison because your denominator differs, and that difference in denominator influences that case fatality rate. So when you look at hospitalized cases in South Africa, our case fatality rate is no different compared to the United Kingdom and Italy and Spain, and it is about 12 to 14 percent. So I think it's a misconception that South Africa has had a remarkably low case fatality rate compared to other settings. Now, in terms of the way to better measure as to exactly how the death rate in South Africa compares to other countries, in the United Kingdom, as an example, their death rate is roughly about 60 60 individuals per 100,000 of the population for COVID-19. In South Africa, looking at data from the Western Cape as an example, which probably has got the best data of all of the provinces and probably is not under detecting COVID-19 cases, the death rate in the Western Cape in some of the districts, in fact, is higher than in the United Kingdom. In Kailisha, in Klipspreit, the death rate, in fact, is above 60 per 100,000. So I think it's a misconception that South Africa has an unusually low death rate. But that being said, there is something else that is at play. So the percentage of the population that seems to have been infected in South Africa is much lower than the proportion of the population that was estimated to have been infected in the United Kingdom, as an example, or many other Northern Hemisphere countries. In many settings in the Northern Hemisphere with the first wave of the outbreak, there were between 5 to 15 percent of the population that was infected. It obviously varies across the country. In New York, as an example, it was up to 25% of the population that were infected. Based on recent data from South Africa, from the Western Cape, as well as from Gauteng, and these are uh, preliminary uh, results, it indicates that any, anything between 35 to 45% of individuals in these provinces, especially in urban metros, might have been infected uh, in South Africa. Now, with that high rate of infection, we would expect our death rate to be much, much higher than in the United Kingdom. But like I mentioned, in Western Cape, it's sort of comparable to the United Kingdom. So we're not actually seeing the high infections sort of translate into a huge number of severe COVID-19 cases or a huge number of people that have died from COVID-19. In South Africa, it's much lower than what that sort of rate of infection, what people would have estimated would have occurred in South Africa with that rate of infection. So what's the reason for this? We're not completely sure. And what I've put forward is really a hypothesis, and it's a hypothesis that we need to test. It's not it's not the sort of an absolute finding that that is the reason why this high force of infection hasn't translated into lots of severe disease. And the hypothesis is, and there's some data to suggest that this might be the case from high-income countries as well, is that uh, there might be that people, especially those living in very overcrowded settings, be it in high-income country or a low-middle-income country, that they actually are much more exposed to this common cold coronaviruses, which have been circulating in humans since the 1960s. And people develop an immune response against the common cold coronaviruses, and there is a possibility that that immune response might actually confer some cross-protection, at least against the progression of infection with the SARS coronavirus 2, which basically means that people might still become infected with a virus, with SARS-CoV-2, but the clinical cause is attenuated because of that underlying uh, immune responses that have been induced by the common cold coronaviruses. And that might be sort of attenuating the clinical cause. 
which is one of the possibilities. There might be other reasons, but this might be one of the possibilities why we haven't seen the high force of infection that has occurred in South Africa translate into hundreds and thousands of cases of severe disease, as well as tens of thousands of individuals that died from COVID-19. Early on in the pandemic, we heard that the TB BCG jab was being explored as a possible way to protect against COVID-19. What are your thoughts on the BCG jab now having reduced maybe the risks for South Africans? So I think that was based on empirical evidence. Uh, There wasn't any really hard science behind those sort of initial hypotheses. More recently, there is a study from Switzerland, I think it was, which basically indicates that there isn't any benefit in terms of infant BCG vaccination in protecting against COVID-19. That is a study that was done in Switzerland, and they've got a very unique population in that there were some people that did receive BCG during infancy and others that didn't. So they were able to do that sort of analysis. In a country such as, such as South Africa, where the majority of individuals are vaccinated with BCG, it becomes difficult to do that sort of an analysis. But I think the, most of the evidence points in the direction that BCG vaccination probably is not conferring immunity against developing COVID-19. So there is another study that's currently underway in South Africa looking at BCG revaccination to see whether that protects against COVID-19, but those results are not yet available. But in terms of infant vaccination, I think those early suggestions were made at a time when the virus hadn't really spread to Southern Hemisphere countries where BCG is more commonly used, and hence they were using sort of evidence which probably didn't stand up to scientific scrutiny or scientific rigor in terms of its interpretation. Before we close off, South Africa reported a huge drop in GDP this week of about 50% and linked to the COVID-19 shutdowns. Do you think if we have another wave, we should go the shutdown route again to save lives? Absolutely not. There's absolutely no reason why South Africa should go into another highly restrictive level of shutdown. And in fact, we probably should be at level one right now. And I mean, I've said it before that even when we were at level five, there was no reason to actually extend it beyond the initial three weeks, let alone continuing with high levels of restriction. What's happened in South Africa has got very little to do, in terms of the epidemic itself, it's got very little to do with the level of lockdowns that we've been through. The levels of lockdown probably only served one purpose eventually, and that was to allow healthcare facilities to better equip themselves and better prepare themselves for what was going to be a surge in terms of COVID-19 cases. But it did very little at the end of the day in terms of the total number of people that have been infected in South Africa. Uh, like I said, that figure is between 35 to 40 percent, which is much higher than is reported in any other high-income country uh, where they had less restrictive lockdowns. So there's no reason why South Africa needs to go back into a lockdown. It really depends on what you're trying to achieve with having a lockdown. And right now we're in a space where we're pretty much not going to achieve much by going into a higher level of lockdown. But that doesn't mean we need to be an open society and allow for mass gatherings. So there are some restrictions that still need to be kept in place, uh, probably up to the end of next year. But we need to basically be much more measured in terms of our response so that we actually avoid further negatively impacting on the livelihoods of people as well as the economy of this country, because this country is going to be crippled because of the economic repercussions of COVID-19 rather than because of COVID-19-related deaths and uh, severe disease. 
that brings to a close your Inside COVID-19 podcast. Until next